Matthew chapter 5. We have been studying Matthew for a good while. Let me get you up to speed. This is a previously on lost kind of moment as we start in the 21st verse of Matthew 5. Jesus has gone to the mountainside. He's begun teaching in what will be recorded as the Sermon on the Mount, an extremely well-known and beloved for many good reasons teaching of Jesus. And what he's recently done as he's begun to start is he say, I want to correct a few errors. You may think that my teaching is brand new. You may think that I've come to undo all the law and the prophets, but he's not doing so. He wants to show us that he's in continuity with what is old. That Jesus brings a kind of perpetual newness to all that is old. And what he's going to do is he's going to take things that have already been known, these laws that were very well established, and he's going to put them into proper focus. He's going to give them a kind of 3D rendering. The reason I say 3D is because I believe that what Jesus says is your righteousness that should exceed scribes and Pharisees, it doesn't need to go up. If you're not quite measuring up to God's standards, don't build a bigger tower of Babel. But instead, understand that the heart behind God's laws is for us to go deeper, to consider the soul in which the ground of our activities and our actions comes from. And so I keep thinking about 3D because 3D is depth. And I want you to know how much I wish that 3D viewing was an actual good experience. Imagine if not only could I use it to illustrate, but you would say, yes, that's something I want. But unfortunately, the reality is that no one has ever watched a movie or film or TV show and thought to themselves, oh, this is my favorite thing ever. What it needs is more 3D. Because it's really kind of a lame experience. That being said, I'm going to press right on through. What Jesus desires to do is to give us new lenses, to bring depth to something that perhaps had become stale. He takes the little frames of what has been drawn out and pictured, and he begins to give them layers down into our souls. That's what he's doing. And in order to show us these things, to illustrate these principles of inside out, I think you'd call it inside out righteousness, not the kind of striving that has a rotten inside and then staples paper fruit on a dead tree, but instead the kind of inside out life In order to illustrate that, because Jesus is a masterful teacher, he's going to exegete. That's a fancy word that says he's going to take take what's there and pull out of it six different things. And these are the first two we're going to look at this morning from 21 to verse 30 of chapter 5. Sort of heavy topics. We're going anger and lust, murder and adultery. So just forewarning. There's not much of a possibility for me to deliver a hilarious sermon concerning murder and adultery, but I do believe that this is going to be beneficial for our souls to consider where these things come from. So let's look together. 21st verse, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 21, I'll read through verse 30, and I'm going to pray for us. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. 
Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until the la- you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's pray for a moment. Good Father, as your children, we ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we need it to be a gift because we have no sufficient merit this morning. We are often at our best a bundle of contradictions and chaos. The things that we do well are tinged by motivations that are often hidden to us. We have hurts. We hurt others. And yet, because you're kind and you've told us to address you as Father, we come into your presence today. So as we've gathered, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. Help us to hear more than we've heard. Especially as Jesus says, you have heard it, but I say, let us listen. And then God, I ask that you would begin to excavate and do the kind of soul work that would be invited by this teaching from Jesus. God, I ask your blessing. And if I could have words that would help, then Spirit of God seal those words. And if your work, which it must, goes on or beyond and does something that is lasting, then please make that possible. So we give our time and our attention and we pray we give our affections to you now too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a great honor to listen to God himself describe the intent behind God's law itself. I would put it up next to and perhaps compare it to someone who loves a particular artist or author, but then also goes to listen to that artist or author describe their art or describe what they've produced or describe what they've read. You know someone is not just a fan of a band, for instance. You'll know the the kind of rabid nature of their love or a desire for a particular band if they've gone to a number of concerts because now they listen to the song and they'll do the kind of thing where you can't just enjoy the song with them. Afterward, they'll say things like, well, do you know what he really meant by this? And they think back to this experience that you can't quite get on because they were privileged to sit and listen to the author of the song say, it was then in the summer of 69 and I had a guitar and I began to play. I'm just borrowing from things, but you get the point there, right? Something happens, something's unlocked when you go beyond the mere external thing that has been produced and you begin to think about, where did this come from? And so Jesus now, we should pay careful attention. This is God himself speaking about the intention behind, the heart behind, the laws, the external thing that was produced. 
And in order to get at this, he's going to give a few examples. He starts with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and then moves on to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And he's going to give us reframing. He'll redraw, he'll remaster and explain these two commands. So we're going to see a reframing of the sixth and seventh commandment. We'll talk about them, and we're just going to follow the teaching of Jesus. He's a wonderful teacher. I don't need to improve upon it. He describes it. He gives examples. He gives application and then moves on. So we're going to follow it, and then we'll reflect just for a few moments together. So we should remember that what Jesus is doing is not contrasting the table of law. Moses had given the Ten Commandments. There had been a great tradition of teachers and rabbis who had taught these things. What Jesus is not asking us to imagine is a world where you had heard it said, you shall not murder, but actually murder. That's not the idea that he has behind his teaching. Instead, he says, that what we should avoid is the kind of external posturing and training that gives ourselves a pass because we have, by the strict letter of the law, simply avoided murdering. And he goes to the heart behind those actions And he wants to confront our anger. And it turns out that many of us, in fact, I dare say, perhaps the whole room, has passed the bar of righteousness wherein you have not willfully taken the life of another. And so, we can skate past. But Jesus says, before you consider yourself checked off, I want you to look at what the soil, the seed, the, the germinating soul condition that leads to things like murder is. And once you get to the point of anger, then all of us need to slow down just a bit. Because anger is something that we've all felt, known, oftentimes tried to fight. And he's going to show us that behind his teaching concerning murder, that anger is a place that we ought to begin when we examine the inner condition of our heart. He gives a few different examples of what anger can look like. He says it plainly in verse 22. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The idea here seems to be an inner, perhaps hidden, not yet out there sort of derision that takes hold when you think of someone else. The kind of thing that if you would be honest about the harboring place of your soul, you begin to wish someone harm, not good. You become critical of them in a way that takes away grace and rather rejoices when things happened badly to them. Perhaps the peak of this for me, I used to be a rabid basketball fan. I still am, but I used to be too. And there was a point when all of my inner angst was directed at Kobe Bryant. And the exact moment when I found myself harboring something that I wanted to get rid of is when I rejoiced and fist-pumped when he tore his Achilles. And I remember thinking, I thought this was just sport, sports hatred. Everybody's got sports hatred, but I might really rejoice in his undoing. So all of us have that, right? This idea, perhaps you think to yourself like, oh, I know what you mean. I can't stand to watch those Yankees fans celebrating. Or I can't stand Leitner hitting the shots. Or I cannot, I just, I know what that's like. And we may have it out there somewhere, but what Jesus says is that for many of us, if we're honest, we struggle with this kind of bubbling thing internally when we think about those around us. So the question becomes this. If you've applauded yourself for not actually knowingly taking the life of another, 
Have you applauded yourself for not saying all the things that come to your mind or not actively working harm towards someone, but you've then entertained and played with and coddled the kind of derisive, critical hatred in your heart? And what Jesus says is, you ought to be careful. You ought to be careful because... Murder. In fact, by the legal definition of murder, it needs to be proven premeditated intent. And it turns out that in order to murder, you have to have a premeditated level, meditated level of anger towards someone. So watch the inner condition of your heart. I, I sort of is real, but in jest, maybe an easy entry point, a sort of gateway anger mentioned sports hatred. But it could very well be that now you can put faces and names of people who have harmed you or simply just annoy you. And Jesus says, don't skate past the sixth commandment without understanding that God desires a righteousness, a love from the inner part of our souls that needs to get down to the level of what is happening inside of here, even if I'm bottling it up. He then goes on and he says, you know, sometimes the stuff that's inside does actually come out and it comes out in our words. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable, will be guilty. The idea here seems to be the word that's used in Greek is raka and it it's often has a connotation of stupidity or someone being an idiot or a moron. So it seems to be an insult of intelligence wherein you judge someone based on the things that they are unable to see that you see. And just think of any number of over-the-top descriptions. My grandparents, for whatever reason, when they wanted to really insult someone's intelligence, they always used a bird of some kind. Say, I did something they didn't like. They'd say, you barnyard bird. And I remember thinking, I don't know what that means, but it's bad. And then later I found out that my grandfather would keep a BB gun on hand everywhere in his shop to shoot those dumb barnyard birds. Or other times they would call you a dodo, like a dodo bird. The point being this, is that sometimes what happens down in the deep of the soul comes out in an insult. And I would say that Jesus is telling us to be careful about the way that we insult one another. I once heard it said, and I'm not sure if he possibly could have lived up to the standard, but Abraham Lincoln once said that he covenanted with himself that he would never speak ill of another. That even in political discourse, that he would not overdo words of insult for effect. That he would disagree, or he would wish that they could see his perspective, but not insult them as utter dolts. And so now I think Jesus is meddling even further. He's down inside of our souls where we have those little moments of just derision. But he's also asking us to examine the level at which we perhaps exaggerate our insults of another. He then goes on, and not just someone's maybe inability to see, but he says, whoever says to another, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And this seems to have the connotation it did with God's people back through the day. To call someone a fool was not just akin to, the same way we might think about it, is un, unwise or just really unable. Some, it seems like a, it's a show of intelligence. Wisdom always throughout Old Testament and the tradition of God's people, wisdom had a moral connotation that was unavoidable. Remember Solomon? Solomon was the wisest 
man that ever lived on the earth. And it says in his request to God, he said, give me an ability to know the difference between right and wrong so that I could lead this great people. So if you called someone foolish, it was not just that they had an inability, but that they had rejected the morality that was given to them and they chose unrighteousness. This was an assault on someone's character. So to call someone a fool was a character assassination. Here's an example. Psalm 14 and then Psalm 53. Sometimes when you're reading the Psalms, there'll be stanzas that get repeated, and the 14th and the 53rd Psalm are almost mirror images of one another. This is an example of how fool might have been taken in this context. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then the next phrase, this is the character definition, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And Jesus says, I want you to be careful about overstating in a character assassination kind of way those who have become your enemies. What this might look like in practice is rather than saying that was an unrighteous deed and that was wrong and that should not have been done, you say you are a wholly unworthy and unrighteous person down to the core. A person who traffics continually in language like this may be the kind of person who is unable to see the harm or hurt from from a bad act, an evil act. They may be be unable to see that act apart from what they see as a pernicious and ongoing systematic attack on all that is good and righteous. And oftentimes it is housed in that particular person. Now I want us to note something. Jesus is not here denying the fact that some people do dumb things. He is not denying the fact here that some people have corrupt natures and they do evil things. What he is inviting us to see is the way that those things are handled from our hearts out and that we ought not traffic in angry kind of language that takes a real offense and turns it into a mountain of offense. It is the kind of dismissive, harm-wishing, and I know this is totally cultural on whichever angle you've had, whatever you think about it, but the kind of instinct to say, not only are you wrong, but you don't deserve to live. It's cancel time or whatever you want to call it. That spirit, now whether right or wrong, and sometimes things need to be gotten rid of, but that spirit that jumps immediately there is not something that we should traffic in. Jesus says, be careful about what's happening with your souls If you win by being more angry than the opponent, perhaps you've lost. Okay? This is the the thought, I think. I believe it's the clear teaching of Jesus in this instance. Because we should not be happy, we have not physically premeditated taking the life of another, if we wish we could at every turn from our soul. Now, I want you to show the connection here. It's interesting. Jesus has already said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he's not telling them something brand new, but he's deepening what has already been there. And I'm going to go forward in the Bible in order to go backward and show you that this is not a brand new thing. God has always desired that we refrain from taking the life of another by examining the soil of our own hatred and anger in our hearts. This has always been the way. So let's go forward in our Bibles to 1 John. John, who was the beloved disciple, he learned well from Jesus. And starting, actually in the second chapter, John has a great phrase. He says, "Uh, I give you not a new commandment, but an old one. You've always had this. And then later he says, but there is newness in him who has come. So he's wrestling with the same thing we are. 
And then he makes a connection, starting in the 11th verse of chapter 3, that I think helps us to see the way that God says anger leads to murder. He says this, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Now he's going way back to the beginning. You see how in verse 11 he says, You've heard from the beginning. He means the beginning. It's like when you ask someone to tell you the story of their life, and they begin by describing the hospital in the room that they were born in. Like, he didn't need to go back that far. But he's going back far. He says, don't be like Cain, who was an evil one, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And then he sums up, as he goes down through this in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John repeats the words of Jesus. If you have hatred, in your heart, for one who has been given to you, one made in the image of God, and you're liable for murder. So let's follow the Cain thread. I don't have it on the screen, and I know that's discombobulating to some of you. I don't have it on the screen. If you want to look at Genesis chapter 4, you can. But verse 8 is the, is the climax of the action. In verse 8 in Genesis chapter 4, Cain rises up against Abel and kills him. But I want us to note the descriptions in verses 5 and 6. Cain had opportunities to acknowledge the place where murder comes from. In verse 5, it says that when the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This is what it says. Cain was very angry. So we back up to realize that premeditated murder doesn't just spring from nowhere. Now, there are chaotic, all kinds of forms of mental illness or difficulty, but it may not be directed murder at a person, but anger is the source of these things. Then again, in verse 8, the Lord goes to Cain, the Lord himself, the giver of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. He goes to Cain and he gives an opportunity. He says, why are you angry? Now, what should have happened here is that Cain should have said that the seed, the germinating seed of anger inside of me will lead to a transgression far greater and exterior. But he does not excavate the soul and therefore commits transgression. The idea here is that in order for us to properly avoid transgressing the sixth commandment, we must be careful to say what is happening down at the soil level of my soul. And if you desire goodness and righteousness and love, you ought to allow the Spirit of God to excavate there. Now Jesus gives us application points. Because the reality is, I don't know if you've looked around, but the idea of avoiding and dealing with anger is pretty relevant these days. You ever had someone ask you, are you like one of those relevant churches? I guess they mean like hip and trendy and whatever else. And I'm always like, we're very relevant. We read the Bible. It's really fun. It's always relevant. But I would say particularly, does this word from Jesus concerning what to do with anger, does it mean anything in a day and age where it seems like everyone is on a rage rampage? Do you think that there are people who are wondering, what do I do? Perhaps they even come to the point where they're like, I don't like being an angry person. Maybe a diagnostic of you could be something like this. Am I more angry and animated and annoyed today than I was last year? 
And at what and whom and why? And if that's the case, you might be led to say to yourself, well, what do I do about this? The world has some answers, but they're usually bad. I want to confess something to you. That sometimes when I was in high school, I watched The Simpsons. And so sometimes that comes out as application points. You might say to yourself, well, it's hard hard for me to forgive you of that, but please do. One of the things I admired about that show is that it often had sort of these moral undertones that were kind of, in a funny way, getting at reality. And Homer was often the center of them. He did a lot of things poorly. He had some stuff going for him. He was committed to his wife and his kids. He got up and he went to work. And I was going to say he worked hard. That's a lie. He went to work every day and then he came home. But often he taught by things that he did not know. And he would give answers that I think are things that people try concerning anger. What do you do if the soil of your heart is bringing up these kind of feelings toward others. There's a moment where Bart has a a meaningful interaction with his dad, and he's asking him, what do I do with these bursts of outrage? I'm getting in trouble all the time. And Homer comes, and you can always tell he's trying to be wise because he has a kind of voice that he says. He says, now, Bart, that's how he talks. He said, when you get angry like this, you should just do what daddy does, and you should just bottle it up deep inside and just keep pushing it down and down and down and down until one day it just explodes like the time when daddy hit the man on the head with the bottle. And then he says, do you remember that, son? (laughs) He's trying to give a careful teaching. And of course, the whole point from this is Homer has a terrible way to deal with anger and eventually just explodes. And many of us live like that. We go from one explosion to the next, trying to do better, and then someone says the wrong thing and you bring a flood that's been bottled up inside. And Jesus says, I'm going to be, he's going to give the anti-Homer. There's a reason 1 Corinthians 13 on this chapter for love says, here, keep a record of short accounts. Short accounts. Don't let them fester. Don't let the, the root of anger go deep into your soul. And Jesus gives these same application points. He says, how about this? If you're offering your gift to the altar, you're at church, and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now, this is a profound statement. This is Jesus saying, leave church. Can you imagine? There's not too many times when the answer from church is, don't do more church. So I want to pay careful attention here. He says, you should consider reconciliation with those whom God has given you to be an act of urgent worship that over and above beyond The physical expression of giving at the altar ought to be taken seriously. In other words, he says, you can't cut off, systematically cut off with hatred, the family that God has given you and still embrace him joyfully as a father. I believe this applies especially to the household of God, but certainly applies to those whom Jesus would later and already has entered in with all the way to the realm of enemies. So the answer is this, a regular assessment of the relationships with those around you is vital to vibrant worship. Your assessment of worship at a place. Oh, what's the worship like at your place? It should include the sense of unity and community and forgiveness and grace that we offer to one another and the awesome riffs that come from the guitar. If you say, there's goosebumps because the music's so great, you might also have to say, and there's peace because we forgive one another heartily from the soul. 
And Jesus tells them, don't be the kind of people who deal with the anger that's inside of you and the conflict in the heart by trying to make up, with it for, make up for bonus points by going and doing more and more external churchy things. And I can tell you that there have been many who have been, banned, who have been burned by Christianity because they see a world of chaos and anger and backbiting and hatred all under the guise of brownie points for being more affectionate outwardly toward God. And Jesus says, don't live like that. You've missed the whole point. Vibrant worship is tied to regular assessment of relationships. He then goes on and he says, also, think about this urgency in a court setting. I am not a civil law expert, not in that, gen- not in that generation or millennium and not now. I don't want to talk in too detailed a way concerning this in, in order to miss the point. But the point seems to be this. Settle things now rather than letting them escalate. Settle things now, don't let them fester. Same point as leave the offering now, don't let it fester. I think essentially the invitation is this. Let yourself see as major things that are often hand-waved as minor so that you do not open yourself to the greater offense. If it is major to murder, then the way to avoid that major is to be careful with our insults, to humble oneself and treat another who is against you. Now, I do want to say, in this whole thing, this takes wisdom and discernment. There might be a little warning under it that says something like, this is for professionals. The point would be something like this. You may have a very easily pricked conscience. And it may be that you should consider the totality of the teaching of the Bible that says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Because the job here, Jesus is not saying you cannot worship with a clear spirit until everyone likes you. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes it's not possible But the reality is is that many of us have not tried very hard. We would rather harbor the hidden harshness than do the uncomfortable thing to humble ourselves and say, I want peace. Well, now that we've solved anger, so we spend a few moments talking about adultery. These things are heavy. We have a few minutes. We'll talk on these things. In the same way that Jesus reframed The sixth commandment, he turns to the seventh. He says, you know, lust has always been behind the command to not commit adultery. In fact, to lust is to break the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment in the tablet itself says, do not covet another man's wife. The idea of lusting is to take the good gift of attraction between men and women, to not steward it well, to turn someone whose God's image is in and turn them into an objectified personal, to use them. And so Jesus says, let's consider what does lustful intent mean in someone's heart? And like anger and murder, very few sins of commission in adultery arise spontaneously, but rather are rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed through a hidden life of the mind. And so Jesus says, let me invite you to a careful consideration of what it is that you're thinking and harboring in the affections of your mind. Is this relevant for this day and age? The answer, of course, is yes. 
Nearly every measure we could possibly put on it shows that an increasing number of men and women are losing this battle to an obsessive level with rather than loving one another, using one another in a hidden life of desire and lust. And that the major things that spawn from this are entire industries of people being enslaved, of marriages being broken, of the good pleasures that God had given being completely ruined through hardness of heart, and habitual giving in to areas of lust. These are difficult things to talk about. But Jesus says, in the same way that we should take anger as a warning sign, a kind of canary in the coal mine, to say, I don't want to transgress these commands, we should not make peace with the fact that we, we have not committed actual adultery. It's just that we continually use the people around us with lustful desire. And we should examine our hearts and treat it as serious. So serious, he says, that he uses this illustration in verses 29 and 30. Look, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should just pluck it out. Better to lose that than to go to hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, just cut it off. Here's what he means. Radical avoidance. Radical avoidance is far better than ignorant making of peace with these things. Because oftentimes we're not honest with ourselves. We're not careful about these areas of life It's so awkward to talk about that collectively, whole societies seem enslaved in these areas. And Jesus wants us to see this, that righteousness, true righteousness, is as much about the physical acts of these things, the external. In fact, even more so, it is about internal. So the point would be this, your bodily well-being is great. Don't just go pluck out all your eyes to avoid the potential for sin. He says, if... In the same way, don't go cut off your arms to show yourself so righteous. If it's causing you to sin, the point would be this. Someone who longs for righteousness from a soul level understands that physical well-being is a wonderful thing, but it is a secondary thing to soul well-being. And if you care, and I hope you do, if you care about physical health and well-being, I hope you are just as intent to consider the recesses of your mind and your heart and will take acts of sometimes even radical avoidance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wasn't the cue, remember? The music, the music comes when I do this. <clears throat> oh, man. There was an AV problem. When did it happen? Right in the talk about lust and stuff, you know. So a couple of things here. Those who are godly throughout Scripture, they take these things seriously. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It's to take these areas of the soil of our soul seriously. Job 31, here's a good instance. Job 31 says this, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a covenant to not, to not use those whose God has put around me. He says, how then could I gaze at a virgin? I made a covenant. Do not take lightly the inner condition of your mind and your heart. 
be better to take steps of radical avoidance than to be enslaved and lost to the penalty of sexual sin. That's what Jesus says. A couple of concluding thoughts. We've seen these frames. He's reframed them and give them depth for us. A couple of thoughts. It may be that the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to a few things this morning. Perhaps when I said, are you letting anger fester, not just concepts came to mind, but faces and times and places. It may be that there are growing senses of guilt. Perhaps you're exhausted right now because I'm saying things about this and you say to yourself, listen, You're just preaching to the choir. I've been in this battle forever. You don't know how tired I am of these things. And it could be that if the Spirit of God is moving these ways to bring these things up, to actually excavate your soul, then I would invite you to say, be careful not to escape and cut short His work. There is a time and a place for rest. That's what's offered to us in the gospel. But there's also a time and a place to say, Spirit, search me. The Psalms say, search me, O God. And it may be that right now you need to say, I'm going to start on a path of being searched. Oftentimes the inane and the seemingly amoral are a convenient escape from doing the hard work of our souls. You say, at least I'm not out there murdering and adulterating. I'm just going to watch sports all day constantly so I don't have to think about the condition of my soul. And I would invite you that if the Spirit of God is beginning to move in you, bring those things up. And the reason that I can say that, because who wants to live in a world of despair? How could I say to you, yes, bring up those feelings of guilt and shame? The reason I can say that to you is because the whole promise of the gospel, good gets gooder, is that Jesus, the same one who invites this consideration, says, okay, has it come up now? Has the Spirit of God cut through His Word to show you these places of your soul? Are they there? Now hand them to me. I'll absorb them. I'll take them upon myself. The same Spirit that can can bring forward these things, can apply the finished work of Jesus on your behalf here and now. He's able to carry the weight of your sins. Jesus loved to hang out. You know who he hung out with? Sinners. If you say to yourself here this morning, I can't think about these things. I'm so sinful. I'm just obsessed. It's terrible. I see the whole Then I would just say to you, that's exactly who Jesus wants to be with. Are you sick? He can heal. So let the Spirit of God work. And then what is uncovered, give it to Him. That's the whole point of the gospel. The perfect record of Jesus can be applied to your life by the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to carry what's excavated. And finally, perhaps this is the greatest bit of promise in a pretty heavy passage of the Bible. You ought to know that the same Spirit of God who can excavate, the same Spirit of God who can take your sins from you and apply the work of Jesus, is also present with you and has promised to indwell you, to give you power to cultivate an inner life of righteousness. You know what's super hopeful in a heavy passage like this? Jesus is talking about cutting out eyeballs and cutting off hands, but you know what word I just love and I think we could cling to here? If. If. He says if. He says it's not inevitable. If you're sinning in these ways, if you're sinning in these ways, that means there's life on the other side of if. And the Spirit of God can actually give you victory in these things. You don't have to be angry all the time. You can forgive. You can let go of bitterness. You don't have to win by being more derisive. You can be free from obsession and lust and using others. The Spirit of God can give you life on the other side of if. And so the thing to do here is to invite His work. You know, Galatians 5, and 23 says that there can be a kind of fruit that comes up from us 
Not the paper fruit, not the paper fake stuff on a dead tree, but a real living tree from the soil of our souls. And he says that there's, this is what comes forward. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Well, wouldn't that list take care of a lot of anger and broken relationships right there? He goes on goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's been times in my life, years of my life, where self-control is my favorite fruit. Do you have a favorite fruit? These are all the fruits of the Spirit. I think it's considered one. But sometimes I've prayed more effectively and fervently for one of the fruits. There's been times in my life, especially I think for young people who are encountering these desires and these relationships broken, you maybe just realized that everybody wants to fight. You maybe just realized that it is very hard to control this God-given idea of desire and attraction. And the gift of the Spirit of God is this, that He can indwell you and give you this fruit. You can pray, Spirit of God, give me self-control. You might look in there and say, I can't order this. It's out of, it's just chaos. Self-control. Against such things, Galatians says, there is no law. The reality of God's holiness and His goodness and His righteousness is that on our own merits, we will never get there. You may have not murdered, but we are an angry people. You may have not committed adultery, but we are a desiring, coveting people. And what we can do is to give these things over to Jesus, who desires to not only forgive, but to make us new. So, let's rush to joyfully confess and anticipate the gifts that are given to those who desire to not be hidden. All that is hidden cannot be healed. 